A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's podcast, I'll be chatting to a woman who's on a mission to go into outer space. Dr Neve Shaw has two degrees in engineering and a PhD in science, but she decided to give it all up and pursue her interest in acting and the arts. In 2014, while performing a show about particle physics, it suddenly dawned on Neve that she had let her childhood dream of being an astronaut slip her by. And from that moment, Neve has done everything possible to make her dreams a reality, from experiencing weightlessness on a zero-gravity flight to simulating a Mars expedition in the middle of the Utah desert. Her new book, Dream Big, is out this March and it documents her journey so far. We spoke about the importance of women choosing careers in science and why she finally decided to back herself and quite literally reach for the stars. If you're interested in learning more about space and Neve's adventures, she's going to be giving a public lecture this evening Evening, Monday, January 13th in Trinity College and check out astronomy.ie for all the details. Here she is, Dr. Neve Shaw. Neve, it's lovely to have you in. Um, Thanks, you're a big dreamer, I think Massive. is a good way to describe Absolutely. it. And that is the title of your book, which is going to be out in March. Yes. So tell us about your childhood dreams and what happened to them. Um, well, we were a family that loved science fiction and facts and science. And very early on, my obsession with space kind of began. And I was about eight or nine years of age. It began with, um, you know, Star Wars obviously had a, had a massive part. But actually from like a, a reality thing was seeing the Earthrise picture for the very first time, which is the picture of the Earth in its entirety from the moon, which was taken in 1968. And... Um, I can remember kind of at eight years of age kind of making a promise to myself that I want to stand on the moon one day and see the earth in its entirety from a distance. And it kind of was always there. And thankfully, I kept diaries and they were pretty boring most of the time. But um, particularly as I got older, um, I don't know if you had these kind of You'd wake up in the middle of the night and you're going, what am I doing with my life? You know, and I'd make lists. And not at all, eight, I didn't. Well, not at eight, but maybe like 15 <laughs> I do that now. or 18 <laughs> or 20 or 25. It would just keep coming up and it would be always there as like these insane things that I wanted to do. And there's there's one kind of piece that I have. It was a page that I wrote the day before I turned 24. And I was having this crisis that I was I was getting you know, I was getting to the stage where I needed to make strong decisions and I still hadn't. I was kind of just doing everything I wanted to do. And and if I had, and wrote down, if I had, um, if I could do what I wanted with my life, this is what I do. And and there it was, like be an astronaut and go to space. And and it was interesting um, because I was making theatre before I wrote the book about my life choices. It kind of almost helped me see what I had forgotten, that it was always there. And so... Um, after I made my second theatre show to space, I kind of just 
decided that I was going to devote the rest of my life to seeing what would happen if I do this as an artist and as a writer, as well as a communicator, but also to finally allow myself live the life that I really wanted and have always wanted. I get so excited being around space people. And that's what's happened to me, which has been brilliant um, since this kind of began in earnest when I wrote that show to space in 2014. I'm just, they're so enthusiastic and positive and they're, you think I'm a dreamer. Oh my God, like <laughs> they're incredible. So so what it did was it changed my perception of, and my perspective of the world and what I'm allowed to do with my life and what I'm not allowed to do. So I was in Ireland and I was this theatre maker that was making this show and that was quite sad about kind of a life wasted wanting to go to space. And suddenly I was in a room with 120 people who were all kind of going, what is unique about your story? And it just shifts the way you see yourself, you know. Yeah. So it's important to always put yourself in rooms of people who challenge your perception of yourself, I think. And you have kind of pursued it in the ways that you can. So, for example, you've been on a zero gravity flight. Yep. What yep. was that like? Oh, I was really scared. So everything I've been doing about space, I've been scared and excited at the same time. <laughs> so did you ever go skiing? I did once and I will never be going again. Yes, me too, because I hated it. But were you scared and excited at the same time? I wasn't excited, I was just scared. Scared yeah, the whole sorry, time. I wasn't but, excited. but yet you didn't want to give up. Well that's Ugh. kind of well, that's kind of what it's like. When I was on the zero gravity flight, um, you know, you you've you've read about it and you you know, you know that this is a flight that astronauts use to uh, acclimatize to the sensation of weightlessness, which is what they would feel like if they were up, say, on the International Space Station. And it was expensive and um you can vomit you know, like it's well known that you've it's, that a lot of it's money called to pay to just get sick. To, to just get sick, and you have like ten episodes of like forty seconds of this free fall, which simulates weightlessness. But in order to do that, in order the flight path um, to get you feeling that sensation, you have to go up at a very steep angle, and it puts this force on your body, which is twice the force of gravity, and that's what makes you feel um, quite nauseous. So I was scared, but I loved it. I absolutely I, like, I did not stop laughing I was screaming I was super excited I loved it but I was scared but then afterwards I was really glad that I did it and I didn't get sick which was great you I was really proud of it. I so didn't that get means sick. you're kind of more astronaut than the other people who got <laughs> sick I just think in my professional scientific opinion that's what that says and the other thing you did is you simulated a mission to yeah, Mars that really changed everything so where for me. was that so there's different facilities around the world that um, if you apply and, you know, with some sort of scientific merit, in my case, it was like to document the scientists and the geologists that I was going with, um, you get selected to be part of a crew. And uh, the centre that we went to is in the middle of the Utah desert, hundreds of miles from anything. It was in the middle of the, this desert that looked like Mars. And uh, we were crew 173, so there was 172 crews that had gone there before. So you can only go in over the winter months because it gets too hot. So there's usually about 15 to 20 crews every year. You can only go in for two weeks at a time. And it was incredible that in that short space of time, I completely adjusted to living as if the day-to-day -day things that we take for granted were gone. I got used to it so quickly. So I you tend, were essentially simulating what life would be like, like if there was a mission on Mars. What would be the conditions? Exactly. What would be the food? What exactly. would be... So describe it for us. What, so what, you go, you're go. you given a, a ration of water. You're given a ration of food. Uh, you can only have uh, broadband and Wi-Fi for like two hours a day because you, you are communicating with mission control and they can tell you what you can and cannot do. Every time you go outside, you would wear a, a space suit. It's not an actual suit, but it it's, it's a signal fire and even in that 
it really upped the stakes in terms of discomfort and danger. It would take you 40 minutes to put this thing on between your radio and your helmet and everything. And it was really heavy and your centre of gravity is off. So even just walking was hard and it was exhausting. And um, I also had a load of camera camera gear and stuff. So I'd have to get down and get up. And then when you're with geologists and astrobiologists, they, they're there to kind of be in the field because they obviously can't go to a planet to test what they do. So so they really uh, get a lot from the practice of, of doing that and going outside or they're called EVAs. And again, I was terrified the whole time because I have a fear of heights. Well, I had a fear of heights. It's not as bad as it was as it is now. I'm sorry, um, hold on a second. I you had want to go to space yeah, and you yeah, have yeah. a fear yeah, of heights. But not anymore, not as bad. But yeah, but yes. That's kind of... <laughs> yes, there you go, because I am this total flawed human who's trying to do something we impossible. All are, Dave. We yeah, all I know are. exactly. Yeah. But the um, but they would kind of climb these, you know, like inclines, and like I would have to follow them with this really heavy rucksack, and they'd fly up, and I just suddenly the fear would kick in. For people who have a fear of heights, you're fine, and then suddenly the fear kicks in, and you just have to just calm yourself down. And they would help me. They would come down. They never, I never mentioned that I had a fear of heights, but they kind of knew, and they would just show me a way of getting up. But the amazing thing was um, I got used to <clears throat> not showering, uh, you know, using wipes to clean myself. I went in with like two pairs of trousers and and four tops and I didn't I didn't bring anything else in except my computer and my camera equipment. And I got used to that very quickly. We flushed the toilet just for number twos, not number ones and the toilet block for the first four days that we were there. And I found that I was actually hardier than I thought and I coped really well with discomfort and having a sense of humour is a massive part of being a good um, team player. I didn't mind the food. The food was awful. I didn't mind it because thankfully I don't have a very good uh, food palate. So um, I could eat freeze-dried foods. The cows come home. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't mind. And and the really interesting was I didn't expect it to have such a profound impact on my um, awareness and sense of responsibility about the planet. That was a thing that came out because when I realised how much luxury we have on a day-to-day basis, it really made me see that we can live far more simply with an awful lot less. So um, I've gotten rid of my car. Um, I only buy clothes now from consignment stores like this dress is from a consignment what, store. What do you mean? Which store? Secondhand. Oh, secondhand. Yeah. But, but, but stores that kind of, you know, it's clothes that, you know... Um, they're not rusty or musty or, you know, the, you know those perceptions of second. It's not like that anymore. I have to tell everyone it's a lovely dress. It's beautiful, in case they're picturing it? some it's really nice. Exactly, that's what people picture. <laughs> but it's not like that. And um, I feel really strongly about my relationship with the planet and I've gotten far more engaged with the, with the climate crisis and I do feel a lot of um, the next steps that I'm taking to get to space will be about that and kind of... Um, you know, because I'm a communicator, it's about finding ways to make that message more, I don't know, more accessible for people. Because I think a lot of people have problems kind of getting their head around the climate issue. It feels almost too big. So I feel it my responsibility as a communicator to break that down and try and find better ways of explaining it. I When I went back home, my apartment was far too big. Um, I downsized, I'm giving away my books. I just really feel that there are smarter ways for us to live more sustainably without having to become a crusty. And, um, you know, that sort of way, like, you know, because it's very extreme, you know, for for a lot of people that kind of live off the grid. But there are there are definitely better ways, better use of storage. So, like, I watch all kind of architect programs and planning programs about those tiny homes and storage solutions and stuff like that. So it really changed everything and it made me see that 
I'm serious about wanting to do this and documenting it and having that kind of artistic or that human perspective is as important as the science because what I find about the space sector is people are interested in it but and some people aren't but a lot of people don't know that it's really not glamorous. It's not like, you know, 2001 or Star Wars where everything is bright and spotless. It's really grungy and dirty and I spent most of, we spent most of our time on, at that Mars analogue facility fixing things. Things were broken. None of our experiments uh, were finished because it was just because when something was broken you can't go and get go out to the electrical store. Our toilet blocked. You can't get a plumber. So it, it you know, that first frontier is always going to be difficult and extreme and being able to relate that message I think humanises the message of space and and how brave astronauts really are. Yeah, I was actually very lucky to meet um, Chris Hatfield yesterday. Mm. I was delighted and it's lucky funny you. just listening to you now is something he said is really resonates is that he said uh, life is just life outside space, in space, wherever, it's a series of problems to be solved. And the only question to ask is whether you're prepared for those problems and how do you meet those problems? And that's how he kind of lives his whole life. And that's, I think, how astronauts think. It's just there are just problems and it's about being prepared and having the knowledge to to solve them and fix them, you know, and and, uh, it's such an optimistic way of thinking as well. You mentioned optimism earlier, like he's one of the most optimistic people. And he says that's sort of an astronaut. Mindset, mindset, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, it was nice talking to him because he was very positive about climate change and talking about how the world is so resilient, the Earth, that we have been through so many catastrophic, various yeah. catastrophes over the, you know, millions of years. And, you know, it's a bit uh, that he thinks this is just another one and that we now have personal just, responsibility yeah. and individual um, ways to do it, but that it can be done. Like He's not one for saying this is not fixable or the earth is going to, you know, he, he talks about people saying the world is going to end. He doesn't. No, agree. I, I agree. But we do have to change yeah, our no, mindset he's, he's and we have to, well. yeah, and, and change. I think it's changing our personal relationship with what the planet is, you know, that it's this living, breathing thing. I think people kind of take it for granted that it just they don't even realise that it has its own existence, that it's orbiting every day, that it's going around the sun, that it exists whether we're here or not. And I think people like to think that we're in charge. We're not in charge. We are, you know, we we have a kind of a a lease, but we're we're not the landlords of planet Earth, you know. Exactly. So where are you with your space journey now? Well, the book was really helpful because like that, I did these things like, you know, the zero gravity flight or the Mars mission or I studied or I witnessed launches. But at the end of the book, I went, but what am I actually doing? Like, what am I actually doing to try and get, you know, one step further to space? And whenever I gave a talk or even since I started writing that show in 2014, I've always said I'm not an astronaut. I'll never be an astronaut. You know, I'm too old. I'm not, I don't have the qualifications. My qualifications in science and engineering, they're not good enough, you know. I wouldn't be able to meet well, you do that have criteria. A PhD and, yeah, and but it's not. Yeah, but it's not at their level. You see how smart no, Chris is. You know what I mean? It's a different level. And so, what? What am I? I'm a communicator and I'm a writer, and I seem to be able to connect with people, and that's my biggest asset. And so, I spent about two years figuring out how can I make that work for me in order to get to space. And so, it's about using all of that and finding a vehicle for it. And because I love the planet so much. Um, I know that if I get there, it will be because I have to earn the right to go. And if I were to say just to be given money, uh, a big like a philanthropist just said, here you go, here's a big wad of cash, I'm going to pay for you to go up to the International Space Station. The way I feel now, I still wouldn't go without earning the right to do it. And earning the right is about 
meeting and talking to as many citizens of this planet as I can so that when I go up, more people know that I'm going up and they have a personal connection to me that I'm going up and maybe they've given me something or they've written me a poem or a piece of um, art or something that I can bring up some way digitally and and that they join me on it. So I've come up with this idea for for kind of literally walking the planet. So it's 384,400 kilometres to the moon, right? And if you do the thing where like one step is a kilometre, I could do like a walking mission in different countries that would take me between like 30 to 45 days. And I want to be visually like showing this effort. It's not just walking for the sake of walking. So it's about like bringing the whole um, image of space with me. So how I dress is going to look, it's going to look like as if I'm an astronaut. It won't be an astronaut suit, but it'll be like outerwear that looks like it's something spacey. And my tent will be kind of like on a sled, like the way like Tom Crean went to the Antarctic. But on that will be equipment and artefacts that I can use to explain about uh, living differently and also about where we're at with space and what space exploration and research has brought back to Earth for us and begin the whole conversation. And so, when are you starting this well, it's, epic it's, journey? Oh, I don't know. It's funding really at this stage. I have a lot of people in lined up and it's just literally getting um, a few sponsors. So that's what I'm. That's the stage I'm so at now. So explain to me, like, where exactly you'll start and where you'll. I think finish I'm going to start in the Camino because I want it to be visual. So the first one's a Camino, and then it's like work, walking out, working out this like walking route to Ireland. So like I have this notion of Tume. I have to go to Tume because I keep saying Tume, and I just I have this notion of like walking into Tume, and like I'm on like you know the you know the the walkway on the main road, you know, like the yellow bit, and I'm walking, and this is like this image of this person like in white and a kind of a space helmet and a kind of a sled and they're collecting their kids and going, who is that randomer? You know, that that's the image I want is that I should be out of place and then visit school, say in Tume and that evening have a, a kind of a talk with families and then ask if I could pitch my tent in the town. So it's it's working out um, a walking route for each country that I visit. So Ireland obviously would be after the Camino. And then there's five countries that have made the International Space Station uh, uh, possible. So it would be America, Canada, Europe, Japan and um, Russia. So that would be who, where I would start. But then I would love to go to Africa and India. And so the idea is, is that uh, when I start, it will gain momentum and it will gain traction and then getting to different countries will uh, naturally happen. So that and after two or three years of that, yeah. that a philanthropist might go, this woman deserves to go up to space or the <laughs> European Space Agency have realised um, it's time to put a communicator up there. There is only one person. So that's it. So it's about it's about earning the right it's and funny. walking the walk. Yeah, because again, talking to Chris <clears throat> Hadfield, like his thing of his, his moment of seeing uh, as a nine-year-old in Canada watching Neil and Buzz yeah. step on the moon for the first time. Uh, and he started to live his life from then. Like, how would an astronaut live? What would, it, would an astronaut eat his vegetables or would he just eat the crap food? Would, and that's the way he kind of lived the rest of his life. And it's kind of like what you're, yeah. you're sort of doing that a little bit, saying like, how do I make myself as useful um to be up and there and, right. and to, to be worthy almost of it. We're exactly. It's yeah. not about getting up. It's it's never been about that for me, which is why I will never be an astronaut because I'm not, I can't do what they do. And also my mission, which it will be a proper science mission with people engaged in it, you know, it, it would be maybe two weeks or something like that maximum. That's not an astronaut, but it's the best that I can contribute. And for me, the biggest gift that, that, you know, um, the International Space Station gives us or or those uh, missions to the moon or lunar missions was 
to change your perspective and it's all about perspective. So if I have you connected to me and people from Choom and African India and they see me go up and they see the earth from a distance through my eyes, that maybe they'll reflect on their relationship with the planet differently because all astronauts, and I'm sure Chris said this to you, the moment that you see the earth from a distance, their perception of scale and dimension and everything changes and the way that's equivalent to the way we live our lives now is that so I grew up in Dundalk and I remember like, um, you know, when I was about 15 or 16, um, I had my first boyfriend, but I I put in a lot of work to get that boyfriend. There was there was parts of the town that you had to be seen in, in order to, you know, for boys to even notice that you existed. And one of them was the Dundalk shopping centre. There was this coffee shop up on the top floor. And so that was the epicentre of my life. Right. And so, you know, everything was about that. And then you go to college and I went to UCD and within a matter of months of meeting a whole other demographic, you go back to Dundalk and the shopping centre isn't the epicentre anymore. And then, you know, um, I went to London to work for the summer and then I went to Australia. And so my relationship with Ireland changed. I cherished it more. So changing your perspective can really change the way you see things and where you can kind of only think about... um, your life from a particular perspective and not from other countries and stuff. The lovely thing about space is it makes us realise that we're all in this together and we are one species of many and that hopefully would process change. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Talk to me about young women and girls and STEM, because I know you've done a lot of yeah. work around that and you've spoken to Oris on Uktron, um about it. So what are you thinking about young women in science now? Do you think, are you hopeful? Is there is there more happening, do you think? There is, but we still have an awful lot to do, Roisin. I mean, um, I mean, the women in STEM movement, I think, really helped me. I was asked there a few weeks ago to kind of reflect on the decade and I don't think I would be where I am if other women hadn't identified the need for us to promote women in STEM more. But we do have an awful lot still to do. Um, There's great initiatives happening in schools, but I believe that real change comes from normalising it, like not making any distinction between being a boy or a girl and what subjects you follow. Because that was the house that I grew up in. There was no distinction ever made. Like I was allowed to change a plug as much as my brothers were. We watched the same programmes. And so the people that show you love are the people that show you what you're most passionate about. I think usually there's a direct relationship with where, where love comes from. Is usually, That usually be, nurtures your passion. So if, if you've baked with your parents, you end up baking and or gardening and all that. So for me, it was science. So science was normal to me. And when I was in my room, my class of engineers, we all had that same similar upbringing. And the lovely thing is, you know, with my bizarre career of being a scientist first and then an actor was that when I found myself in a room of writers and actors, I realised that my upbringing was very different to theirs and what was what was a priority in their home was different. And so we have to find a way to bring science and STEM into every day as, as common as gardening and baking shows and things like that. And I still think we've an awful lot to do. So a lot of the work that I do is I love speaking to schools and I love speaking to young girls, but they're almost an easy sell for me. Uh, the people I'm really trying to connect with are families and particularly parents and grandparents um, who 
for some reason have a bad relationship with maths and science, whatever happened in school, and to kind of break that down and really think about it and get into communities, more um, socially diverse communities, not the communities that had, um, you know, uh, a reasonable upbringing. I'm really trying to get into communities where you'd be lucky to even think about your education. You know what I mean? That's where real change can happen. I think that's a really great way to approach it because I'm even just, as I'm listening to you, thinking about my own self and definitely having a bad relationship with maths and science. And then I know that I don't um, sort of, because I have that, it's not something that with my daughters that I I have anyway. So I'm really intrigued as to what those projects might be and how you might engage families because it is a cultural thing more than even more than a school thing. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, it is. Because you can do all of that in school. But if it's not something that people at home are excited about, then, you know, it kind of kind of get lost. Well, that's what they say, you know, so there's been studies done about like, why don't girls take up science? Like even though girls who are really good at science in school don't end up doing science, you know, like the numbers you can see it as they go through their career. And a lot of it is to do with this notion of of having um, a capital of science. So um, role models, um, influences around the house, what they read, what happens in school. If It's about a number of influences being in your line of sight. So the reason why I didn't even consider talking about wanting to go to space as a child was there were no female astronauts hanging around, as I say, I always say hanging around a dog shopping centre. They weren't there. They weren't in my line of sight. And also, I didn't know about the European Space Agency. So if I'd have known about those things, maybe my life would be different. And that's why I think I care so much about what I do. So um, helping create that science capital, uh, for me, I feel that the education system and and a lot of organisations that are investing in the girls in STEM, they're focusing on the schools and that's brilliant. So I seem to be able to talk I have a gift of the gab and I love having the crack. So I I hope that with those skills that I can start to kind of attract families, but more importantly, parents and grandparents and gu- carers and guardians and um, get into diverse communities to talk about why do you have a difficulty? Like really kind of start asking those questions. And the walking project has an awful lot of that for me. So it's as much of a survey for me as it is for me to kind of tell about, talk to people about the amazing things about space is actually start with like a round table thing of like, so so why don't you care about science? Why don't you care about space? And find out where the yips are and everything. I get asked lots of times to do grinds and stuff for, for kids in science. And the first thing I always ask parents is, so what are you doing for her? <laughs> and they go, like what that. do you mean? I go, well, why do you, where do you think she's suddenly going to fall in love with science or I have know. this science career? And they go, well, uh, what do you mean? I said, okay, well, let's let's look at what are you watching together? Well, we're watching Gogglebox and watching the Great British Bake Off <laughs> and we're watching Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. And the problem with that is there are no scientists in those programmes. So my question is, why aren't there scientists on those programmes? Okay. Right. On the Great British Bake Off? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, there are. There have been one or two uh, on the Great British Bake Off. But like, why aren't scientists in that celebrity circle and if that okay. is, do we well, need actually, to crack that? Because that lovely Irish woman Liz Bonin she's yeah, doing she's really amazing. well in yes. England and she's on the telly and yes. she's a scientist yes. so I think there maybe is a bit there's more a, there's an upkeep there's an up, yeah. there's an up actually, and, and you're making me think now I must introduce my daughters to that concept of Liz Bonin and all the things yeah. she does because she's she's brilliant. really good so, th- so there are people doing it but we need more 
We okay. just need more and it needs to get to parity. Right. We Listen, need... if anyone listening is really interested in what you're talking about and yeah. wants to know more, is there a way of getting in touch with you? Have you yeah, got a website? I have or a website, the... yeah. So neveshaw.ie is my, is my website. Easy. Yeah. neveshaw.ie and um, hopefully when you've done all your travels all around the world, you come back and talk oh, to us about Russia, it. Yeah. And the best of luck with it because, Thank I mean, you. I really admire your passion and the fact mm. that, I mean, I've known about your sort of interest <laughs> over the last you know, 15 years yeah, or whatever and yeah. uh, you're still here, still talking still about it. it. Still hopeful that one day I'll do it. You will do I it. Imagine making the impossible possible. That's what I'm trying to do. I think you're going to do it, Nisha. I am going to do my best, Roisin Ingle. <laughs> well, thank you very thank much you. for coming in. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Neve Shaw, and we wish her all the best with her expeditions. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.